This is Resonance 104.4 FM. My name's Jack Thurston and this is The Bike Show. is the bike show and funny how time passes it's september already i'm back from three weeks of glorious cycle touring and camping in the pyrenees and france and i will tell you a little bit more about that later on um, in the show if not next week Even though 1,500 kilometres and quite enough vertical metres for me in the mountains felt like a lot of cycling, of course, it's nothing compared to the kind of rides that you've been listening to from Alistair Humphreys over the last two episodes of the show. Alistair's, of course, spent four years cycling around the world covering the length of the three major land masses. That's what I call cycling around the world the hard way. Alistair is currently in preparation for an expedition now to the South Pole, um, not on bicycles. I think he's going to be pulling um, his stuff along on a, on a sledge. And uh, he tells me the preparations, though, is involving an awful lot of cycling around Richmond Park with Ben Saunders, who is um, the other guy on this expedition. You can find out more about the expedition at Alistair's blog and, and the uh, South website. I think it's called south.com code.uk.org.uk. Anyway, Google as to Humphreys South and um, you'll also find information about what he's up to. And don't forget the two books that Alistair wrote about his journeys. Uh, the most recent one, which is just published by iBooks and should be available in all good bookshops. It's called Thunder and Sunshine and it's a really good read. So if you enjoyed those two extended interviews last week and the week before on The Bike Show, um, you'll definitely enjoy Alistair's books. And if you were listening carefully to Alistair's account of his circumnavigation of the globe, you'll have heard him confess that there was only one section of the route where he decided against 
proceeding by bicycle and decided to go by yacht. And that was the crossing of the Darien Gap, a stretch of swamp and river that divides Colombia from Panama. Now, the first complete overland journey from one end of the Americas to the other was completed between 1971 and 1973 by Ian Heibel, including a crossing of the Darien Gap through the Atrato Swamp and all the horrors that that involved. Very sadly, the news has come last week to many people that Ian Heibel was knocked down and killed by a car on the road between Athens and Salonika in Greece on the 23rd of August. Ian was 74 years old and still going very, very strongly on the bicycle. Before we hear from one of Ian's friends, I want to play to you a clip of a video documentary about his epic crossing of the Darien Gap way back in the early 1970s. At last, the greatest obstacle, the Atrato Swamp, a 30-mile-wide, soggy plain that is thousands of feet deep in places on which floats a deceiving crust of almost dry land. Attempting to travel from Chile to Alaska by bicycle, three New Zealanders are the first to cross the Atrato. Whenever anybody turns around and expresses an opinion, including this is impossible, someone accepts the challenge and they generally get away with it. That's one of the reasons why we're here. best days cutting or slashing or pushing or bashing away through the, the eight foot tall rubbish was about two kilometers and uh, that was pretty pretty hellish you, you have to uh, do it in two stages one you carry your rucksack through second you would return for your bicycle I think the the most depressing part of it, the, apart from the fact that you're in water, ankle or calf or even thigh deep all day long, is that uh, even when you're eating, it's very seldom a dry place to, to sit. You have to squat or, or just stand. And the last thing uh, that you have to do uh, at night, you crawl into your hammock that you've put up over a lake. You're standing uh, nearly up to your knees in water and you have the horrible job of getting out of your soaking wet clothes. They've been soaking wet all day anyway. Climbing into a nice dry hammock. Well, this is fine, but you know that that water's waiting for you the next day, just as deep and just as unpleasant. I think this has been the, the part that's got us down, all of us down mentally more than anything else. That was Ian Heibel crossing the Darien Gap and the Arato Swamp with two New Zealanders. Ian was, of course, British, uh, uh, and the uh, narrator of that documentary got it wrong, but um, he was crossing there with the two New Zealand uh, colleagues who didn't, in fact, join him on the journey up to Alaska. Um, But that was Ian Heibel's uh, first and the world's first journey from one end of the Americas to the other. Nick Henderson was a friend of 
Ian's and describes Ian as his hero. Uh, Nick maintains a website with a lot of information about Ian's life, photographs, and, um, of course, his bicycles. According to Nick, Ian gained his taste for travelling during his RAF service in the 1950s and um, in 1963, determined to see more of the world, he left Brixham, Devon, his hometown, to explore some of the world's most wild and inaccessible places on earth. He didn't come back for 10 years. Over his lifetime of cycle touring, he's pushed, dragged or carried his bike from the fringes of the Antarctic to the jungles of the Amazon, from the Arctic to the remoter islands of, islands of Indonesia. According to Nick, he's been chased by an elephant, sniffed by a lion, jailed and shot at. More friendly confrontations have included hospitality by an Eskimo princess, a Dayak headman from Borneo, African chiefs and missionaries. Over the weekend, I spoke with Nick Henderson on the telephone and I began by asking him when he had last seen Ian. I dropped him off in Hull. Um, he doesn't drive, see, over, over his mountain drive anywhere. And um, he either gets about by bike, obviously, or um, train. He even came over to my house by uh, ferry once um, across the Bristol Channel. But um, I dropped him off in Hull on his latest trip. And um, that was it. That was the last time I saw him. About a m- month ago, that was. And how did you become friends? I was interested in his bike bit more more than him at the time, and uh, I wrote off to him and uh, asked to if I could take some photographs of his bike. And then the next minute, uh, he, he wrote back to me and said, "Oh, I'm coming up to <laughs> coming up to stay with you." which is the way Ian works. I didn't know it at the time, but he, he, he likes staying with people and, and people stay with him and does it all over the world. So um, he came up, that was 2002. Uh, he came up and stayed with me for a couple of days. He was on his way north anyway. And um, I took some photos and we became friends after that. And what kind of man was he? On a personal level, he was... Um, not a loner because he has so many friends worldwide, but um, totally dedicated to what he was doing. Um, that is cycling the whole world. He, uh, that's all he could do, and that was always in his mind. And um, uh, over the years, he, he cycled in just about every country in the world, and. He's a, he's a great bloke, very friendly, and like I said, he'd invite you into his home, and you would be invited to other people's homes all over the world. Mongolia, uh, last year, he was in Mongolia and Russia the year before that. He stayed, stayed with some Mongolian uh, family, and they, they got the internet, believe it or not, and uh, they still send emails now. They send them to me. Before Ian was on the internet, I used to get his emails and pass them on to him. So he's a great bloke. And do you think he rode a bike because he loved the bicycle, or do you think he rode a bike because he, it was something that allowed him to explore and be adventurous and make these journeys that had never before been made? Uh, both is the answer to that. He loved the machine itself because... He, was, uh, he designed uh, his own pannier frame system and uh, he, he was very much into the technical side of things for the bike and 
he just loved everything about the bike. He wouldn't think of travelling anywhere without the bike, say walking or or motoring. Uh, if, if he couldn't take the bike, uh, he didn't go, basically. And what kind of bike was he riding? Um, at the time of his death, he was riding a, a lightweight machine because the ride he was on was a, a training ride. He rode from Hull, uh, then across the channel, down, I didn't actually ride the channel, but uh, across uh, Europe to Greece, where he died. But that, that, as I said, that was a training run for, he was hoping to do Tibet and Nepal next next year. So he was on a lightweight bike, but normally he rides this uh, it's a heavyweight touring bike with a um, built-in pannier system for the extra loads. Well, what, what, why would you want a built-in pannier system? I mean, what's wrong with well, the racks that everyone else has screwed on? Well, in those days, when the bike was built, the, the, the high-quality racks weren't available as much as they are today. Uh, they were more aluminium jobs, but he carried more than normal people, so this pannier system was brazed in to prevent sway, basically, which is uh, a bit off-putting when you're a fully loaded bike. So he designed it, and it was made by um, Argos Racing Cycles in Bristol. And do you have any idea of what his greatest rides are in his own mind what were the times that he would talk about when you were together well uh when we were together he he, well, he talked about all the rides uh, he's most famous for is norway to south africa and then argentina to alaska but the, the most uh, talked about part of uh, his trip and there's a clip of it on youtube is a, a crossing of the darien gap which uh, is a 30-mile wide bottomless swamp. And he actually, I think he was uh, the first person ever to cross it unaided, again, with bike, which he had to do in sections. You take the panniers off, drag them through the swamp, go back to the bike, because he needed the bike, because at the other end of the swamp, there was no transport. Uh, he had to get on the bike and carry on cycling. It must have been a terrible shock for you and for everyone else who knew him to hear about his death is there anything that you th- you're going to think about as a as a memorial uh, a, a way to, to, to mark um mark the man even though he's no longer with us anymore well at the moment there's um a, a call for a permanent memorial in brixham in his hometown and i think they're going to set up uh, a public subscription to raise money for that memorial so hopefully that will go ahead. Do you think he, over the course of his life, created a, a new style, in a way, of cycle touring? Do, do you think his legacy will live on beyond his own adventures? I think so, because uh, now that uh, he's passed away, I've had so many emails from people who say, say that um, he was their inspiration. And Ian, Ian was the first to do a lot of these rides. There's quite a few people uh, doing these type of rides now. Um, but uh, Ian, back in the, the 60s and early 70s, he was one of the first to do them. And uh, I've had lots of emails from people, like I said, saying that uh, he was their inspiration, not just to go do these rides, but just to dream about them more than doing them, because there's not many people that can uh, copy Ian Highwell. That was Nick Henderson talking about the great Ian Heibel, probably 
the most legendary cycle tourist the world has ever seen or is likely to see, who was killed last week on the road, age 74. He did write a book called Into the Remote Places, published in 1984. It's now long out of print and pretty hard to get a copy. So I wonder if this very sad, um, tragic death will, will lead to some movement towards getting his book published again so that people can read about him. With the death of Ian Heibel and the death earlier this year of the world's greatest living encyclopedia of bicycles, by whom I've, I'm of course referring to Sheldon Brown, let's hope that we don't lose any other members of the pantheon of cycling greats for a long, long time to come. And of course, every sympathy to Ian's family and friends. Ride a bike, 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 ride a
We've been overwhelmed by interest from our customers this year in the team um, and have been really excited to get involved with Elite Racing. And uh, next year we're going to finance the team partly from Rafa and Condor and some of our sponsors, but also through members. So we're offering membership of the team to an ex- exclusive club, effectively, to 100 people. Uh, and the, the price is £1,000, uh, which is quite a lot of money, but for that you get unique access to the elite riders, training camps, time in the team car, You'll be the only people with the same kit as them. Uh, you get the opportunity to ride with them and uh, have an intranet where you can talk to them all the time and get training tips. So, so 100 people giving £1,000 each, £100,000, how much as a proportion of the total financing of a bicycle racing team does that compose? It's less than a third. So but it's a significant amount. It's a, it's a fantastic amount, yeah. It would really help and... Uh, it's, uh, it's the right way to go, I think, given that times are reasonably hard for sponsorship. People really want to get involved in cycling because it's, it's the buzz sport, but at the same time, they don't want to put in £250,000. So. Why is it difficult to find big money sponsors? Uh, credit crunch, basically. Um, global e- economic outlook is, is difficult. Um, people want to get involved, but to be a sort of... To be a, a very, a very valuable sponsor. You've got to put in a lot of money, and we're only offering Rafa and Condor are part of the name as well. So we're only offering a partnership in that. So it's it's not as good as uh, being CSC, for example, who are the name of the team. Our team will be Rafa Condor. So it's uh, you're not going to have a, a, a team with a hundred uh, names no, after it. Absolutely not. No, <laughs> that's everything. And what's the against. response been like? It's been fantastic. We've had 30 so far have signed up and we've just launched it publicly today. So I think uh, in a couple of weeks it will be done. And do you see this as the way it's going to go for other cycling teams as well? Well, uh, there's a Pro Tour team that's done the similar thing, uh, Cervelo, and, uh, for next year. And I think others will try. You've got to have the right kind of connection with, with the audience, though. And uh, we're lucky we have thousands of customers, so we can do it that way. And so finally, what are you looking for from the uh, riders in the Tour of Britain? Uh, I think just a showing would be great. It's going to be very tough, um, but they're very fired up. And uh, if we could win a stage, that would be amazing. Um, top 10 would be, would be wonderful. But uh, I think just getting, getting themselves in there and, and having a shout would be great. Well, the first stage of the Tour of Britain is underway. And I have to say it's a little underwhelming. There's one or two uh, spectators dotted around the course, which runs from where I am now, just off Whitehall, up to Tower Hill, and then back, and they do this circuit 10 times and um, I have to say the the supporters and the spectators are not putting an awful lot into uh, their support of the uh, race it, with the exception of uh, three gentlemen who are standing with placards um, at a particularly good point on the route where their riders ride through a little chicane and uh, I've joined one of them. What's your What's your name and why are you here? Uh, my name is Phil Williams. I'm here to uh, protest about the involvement of Eon as the sponsor of this event. And so they've got their logo and all that plastered over the race, but you've got some placards here that are saying something slightly different. Well, it's, it's typical uh, greenwash from uh, these major uh, polluters of our planet and um, they're sponsoring at the moment lots of um, sports events and cult- cultural institutions um, to try and greenwash their image so basically bringing themselves across in a favorable light to the public whereas behind the scenes actually they're up to a lot of underhand things and um, financing uh, specifically with Eon the production of, of new coal-fired power stations in this country. And what don't you like about that? The fact that it's the dirtiest of all polluters, uh, the fact that um, 
in this current climate of climate change, we should be looking to uh, invest in renewable energies. We should be looking forward, especially, you know, this, this great country we live in. We should be uh, an example to the world, and we're not. We're basically going for uh, the, the cheapest uh, um, um, way of, of, of producing electricity for, for maximum profit. Have you put your complaints to E.ON themselves? Uh, E.ON are aware of our complaints. We actually come from uh, the, uh, the Climate Camp organisation um, where we recently had a, uh, a, a week-long event uh, camp at Kingsworth um, Coal Fire Power Station in Kent. Uh, and we're aiming to, to continue um, turning up wherever E.ON turn up themselves with, with any of these events and to, to make our protest and our point made. So it's a very homemade protest. What sort of impact do you think you've made today? Well, I'm being interviewed for the radio, so hopefully uh, we're going to get to a bigger audience. Uh, I think it's just raising public awareness. We actually just decided to do this yesterday after, uh, after meeting with a few friends um, and just to come down and, and to make some banners this morning and, and just come and make a point. I mean, you know, we're not about going out and having hugely expensive banners made that, that look extremely fancy. We're just trying to make our point here, talk to members of the public, talk to people like, like yourselves, get our message across and hopefully raise awareness of, of these institutions that are, that are polluting our planet and greenwashing their image uh, for their own, their own gain and their own profit. And have you enjoyed the cycle racing as well? I actually really like the cycle racing, yes. Yeah. So I think I would have come and watched it anyway. Uh, it's just a shame it's being um, tainted by this dirty polluter and the police have been fine with you being here i see there's a few policemen standing behind you but they're all right yeah. all right about it are they yeah well i think we're just outside the sokpa zone so i think if we were a few hundred the what zone uh, the sokpa zone so uh there's a zone created around parliament uh under the anti-terrorism laws where where now you can't actually go to our seat of democracy and protest outside um because of anti-terrorism laws so i think if we were inside that zone they could well get us under ludicrous uh, anti-terrorism laws for holding up uh, homemade placards of cardboard but yeah you know the you know the police obviously have a little interest in what we're doing here but we're, we're not doing anything illegal as far as i'm aware and we're just we're just um sending our message out in a, in a peaceful and legal way and getting on the tv cameras hopefully uh, it would be nice to get on a few tv cameras uh, there's um going to be more than just us around there'll be a few other people i'd imagine at other parts of the of the course um so yeah any kind of um public um uh, publicity uh is is good from our point of view uh and hopefully you know people will stop and have a think well that was phil williams of climate camp and simon mottram of rafa condor recycling and i hope you got a couple of different ends of the pros and cons of sponsorship of bicycle racing in the Tour of Britain. And you'll have heard um, Simon Mottram asking for £1,000 per person to sponsor the uh, Rafa Condor Recycling team. Now, that seems like quite a lot of money, but apparently he's got quite a few people, already uh, 30 people signed up, and is very confident of another 70 to take it to the limit of... 100, which is what they're going for, to raise £100,000. Now, if Resonance could raise anything like that, we might have a hope of continuing on into um, a 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th year of broadcasting, London's greatest radio station. You may not know that Resonance is a 24-hour-a-day radio station broadcasting on FM, and um, with me to talk about it briefly at the end of the show is Maria. Hello. Hi, Maria. You're the engineer on a Monday night. Yes. What do, you, um, what do you like about Resonance? I like the fact that actually it's run mostly by uh, volunteers and it has a very good um, 
quality of programs, a variety of programs, specialized programs like the bike show or for pensioners, for economics, for ecology. Uh, really nice radio art programs, really quality uh, music programs for the Wire, Wire magazine, um, rough, uh, rough Trade, everything is very, very of good quality and good standards. And of course, uh, it's not following the mainstream method of radio making, which is really boring. Yeah, so uh, as well as so all, the, nice. all, the pro- <laughs> all the program makers doing it for free, yeah, all everything. the engineers as well. So ha- yeah. how often are you in? Uh, I used to be more when I started in December, uh, um, late November, and um, I used to come more. Uh, but now I'm coming only once a week, every Monday for uh, how long is the shift? Four and a half, four and a half hours. Four and a half hours. So there, are, there are lots of people doing this kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, long shifts, four and a half hours upwards, and we need your support very much. We need your money basically. If there are lots of people listening to the bike show, whether it's by FM or on the podcast. And you can send cheques to Resonance FM, 144 Borough High Street, London SE1 1LB. Or you can do it by the internet, PayPal, uh, or the Visa, MasterCard. All that is accepted. Anything, basically, if all the people who download the show as a podcast, which is around about 5,000 a week, if everyone gave a pound, that would be 5,000 pounds. And that would be a, a significant chunk of money for Resonance because a little bit of money goes a very, very long way, unlike perhaps the Rafa Condor recycling cycle team. I shouldn't say that. but <laughs> And of course the money doesn't go to the people who work there, but only to sustain to, uh, the, um, the license and everything. That yeah, basically we have to, to pay for the bro- yeah. broadcast, pay for yeah. the antenna, pay for the studio repairs, pay for the rent of this place. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so please, anything that you can give would be more than welcome. I'm going to keep badgering for the next few weeks on this because we do need to raise some money because if we don't raise some money, then it's going to be curtains. And I'd rather start this thing going now when we can do something about it than when it's going to be too late. Anyway, thanks for coming down, Maria. Thanks for listening to The Bike Show. We'll be back again next week. Until then, chapeau and ride safely.